Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Green Room. We're in the back end of Disrupt TV, episode number 281. We've got two amazing guests. Um, we're still trying to figure out what happened at Davos, uh, but we'll figure that out later. <laughs> so welcome. Oh, wait. So, so what we're going to do is we're going to do reverse introductions. We're going to start with Ryan, go to Mike, and go to uh, Steve. And we'll ask you um, where you're calling in from and what you're talking about today. So Ryan, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about? Hey, everyone. Yeah, Ryan Williams here. I'm the founding partner of Ashbury Legal, calling in from uh, sunny Oakland, California. And we're going to talk about DAOs today. DAOs. All right. Mike, what are we talking about today? Where are you calling in from? Sure. Mike Nugent uh, from Vestigo Ventures. And we're going to be talking about early stage fintech. Very, very cool. Early stage. Who knows early stage more than the, our next guest, Steve? Uh, who are you calling in from? What are we talking about? So I'm calling in from Davis, California. Not too far from San Francisco. I am the CEO of Founderspace, and we are going to be talking about demand hunting and how to create great startups. Very cool. Well, we're going to turn it. We'll start the show. Kick it off to L. L. All back to you. All right. Three, two, one. <laughs> Welcome to Disrupt TV, episode number 281. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Holger Mueller. Vala Afshar is actually on vacation today, and he'll be back for the next episode. Uh, but we're really excited to have you here. And of course, as you know, this is the Enterprise Tech Leadership uh, Show, talking about what's happening next. Um, I'm here joined by my awesome co-host, Holger Mueller. As you know, he's the Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. He's had extensive careers in the enterprise software space, and he's one of the top five analysts in the world, according to the International International Institute of Analyst Relations. So, and of course, I'm Ray Wong with Constellation Research and of course, your co-host for today. But as you know, it's not about us, it's about our amazing guest. And today we have an amazing guest to kick it off today, none other than the one and only Steve Hoffman, Venture Investment and Chairman and CEO of Founderspace. If you know Captain Hoff, he's a global, he's built Founderspace, a global innovation hub for entrepreneurs, corporations, and investors with over 50 partners in 22 countries. Uh, Steve is also a venture investor and the founder of three venture backed in two bootstrap startups. And of course, the author of several award-winning books, which we're gonna talk about one today. These include Make Elephants Fly, Surviving a Startup, and The Five Forces. And if you've ever read those, Definitely check that out. And you can follow him on at Founders Space. So Steve, welcome to the show. And of course, Holger will kick off with the first question, but welcome, Steve. Great to be here, Ray. Really nice to be here, Holger. Well, welcome, Steve. Um, but I have to ask the first question off the script right away. Why Captain Hoff? I mean, I'm maritimely inclined. You have some <laughs> Pacific Ocean behind me. Why Captain? Captain Hoff is actually my gamer handle. So I'm a okay. big time gamer. It came Good. out of that. And then it became my nickname, running Founderspace, which is a global startup incubator and accelerator. I'm the captain of the team, and it was everybody adopted that name. Excellent. No, I, I like it. Right? Um, there's so many captains, Captain America, Captain Jack, whatever, Captain Hoff. And I thought you came from the media world, but obviously you come from the gaming space as well, right? And one of the things nearby was that you, you have more jobs than a cat's life, right? So it is true. And um, yes. the crazy is, right, which cats have more lives, the European ones or the American, the English-speaking ones, right? So uh, the Europeans ones only have seven, so. Oh, but well, the Americans have more. <laughs> we have right. nine lives. Exactly, nine, yeah. So so you, you're two European cats. You're still working on being two American cats. Exactly. <laughs> Getting us to laugh at the beginning. You have one really challenging thesis in the book, right, which is the idea doesn't matter, right? It was kind of like offsetting to some of the entrepreneurs, but I'm sure you have some great thoughts behind it. Please explain that. 
So most entrepreneurs think in order to start a startup, they have to have an epiphany. They have to have that big idea, something that Elon Musk would be proud of. You know, I'm going to yeah. go to Mars. I'm going to change the world. But honestly, when you really look at how successful startups launch, most of them don't have a big idea. In fact, uh, they well, they do. A lot of them have a big idea, but it's the wrong idea. <laughs> so let me give you just a couple examples of this. We all know that there was this company and they started out creating a video dating site. They thought video dating, that's the big idea. Everybody's going to want to date by video. Hot. It's going to be hot. You know, who wouldn't want to do this? This is in the early days of the internet. And so they launched this and lo and behold, people didn't like to date on video. They don't want to meet people on video on their first meeting. It's just very uncomfortable. And so they were floundering about and then they wanted to share a video file, which is a large file. And in those days, there's no way to sh easily share it with their friends. So they said, oh, well, what if we upload it to our video dating site? You know, we've already built the infrastructure and just share the link. And what company did this become? Well, this became YouTube. <laughs> so YouTube, YouTube wasn't built by, I'm going to build the largest video broadcast network in the history of the world on the internet. That wasn't their big idea. It was a video dating site. And then it was simply link sharing. And once they did that, it led them to actually creating what they are today. Look at the, another company we all know about, you know, Google. When Google started, Larry Page and Sergey Brin thought they were doing a nonprofit. They thought their idea was so small that it would never make money, which is ironic because look at Google today, one of the most profitable companies in the history of humankind. Uh, but what they were doing was doing basically allowing researchers to find research papers online using their algorithm. That was a niche market. It's a small market. So they were right. They were a nonprofit. Then they discovered they could take what they had actually built and apply it to a bigger problem. And this is something, the list goes on, like Yelp. We all love Yelp. We all love writing the reviews and reading the reviews. That was an afterthought to Yelp. You know, Slack, the company we all love, Slack was actually a game. It was a game. And they, they had built this tool their engineers were using to communicate amongst each other. And when the game failed, it, then they, that became Slack. So I'm telling <laughs> entrepreneurs, this is what you do when you want to start your company. Don't sit around trying to think of the biggest idea ever because what you need to do is dive in and you need to pick an area that you feel passionate about and that your team, your team feels passionate about. Get a great team. We feel passionate. We're going to start exploring. We're going to come up with 20 ideas. And if you come up with like 20 ideas or 30 ideas with your team, then you can, you become much more objective. You don't stick with an idea just because you, st it was the only idea you had. You're like, we'll try this. And if this doesn't work, we'll try that. And one <laughs> idea leads to another, a much better way to launching a successful startup. Okay. So, so you're saying basically, don't get stuck too much in the idea. Me as a German here, don't get too disciplined about it, but be ready to use an overused word for startups. We had to pivot when there's a big opportunity. Is that the I essence? want people pivoting from day one. So okay. when you are launching a startup, what you're doing is you're not trying to think of that, that sexy idea that sounds so great that every, we've seen all, so many of these ideas fail. Like people yep. come up with these great, they sound great on paper, <laughs> they're great in a PowerPoint slide, they, they end up nothing. What I want you to do is get to, first of all, spend 80% of your time looking for the people you want to work with. Like who's the amazing engineer? Who are the amazing designer, yes, UI yes, designer? Yes. Who are these people? Then you don't have to have the ideas as CEO. Like this is another problem. Like people think, oh, I'm the, I'm, I'm the CEO. I have to come up with all the ideas. Huge mistake. Like think about it. Elon Musk, he didn't come up with the idea for Tesla. <laughs> that was a company he invested in. Kalanick, he didn't come up with the idea for Uber. It was a, an idea he invested in. You don't need to be the generator of the ideas. You need to be the one that brings the people together and starts them down a path. And together you discover what works. So the logical yeah, Steve, question that is, is amazing advice. Yes. Steve, that is amazing advice. And, and, and really, I mean, as you think about it, when we look at the life cycle of organizations, it's, it's the dynamic founder. It's getting an amazing team together, then figuring out if there's a product and viability. And then, of course, reaching out to different markets. And then, of course, after that, you, you go public and all hell goes, <laughs> it all goes to crap from there. But, but you had a very interesting point. And, and along that journey, it was really demand hunting. Like, what is demand hunting? Like, do you go out and, and deliberately create the conditions for demand hunting or is this something that just happens to happen or is this something over the years you said look successful startups all have this skill set so i like to say 
after getting your team together, which is the first most important thing, and picking a direction, like I want to innovate on the restaurant business, I want to innovate on the fishing industry, I want to make it more sustainable, whatever it is, at that point, you need to, it doesn't matter what your idea is, how much you love your ideas. So let's pick the fishing industry. Let's say I want to go into the fishing industry. I want to make it more sustainable because there's a lot of bycatch. There's a lot of pollution. There are horrible working conditions. All these different things are wrong with this industry. It's like antiquated. It's killing our oceans. I want to go into it and change it. Well, you can have the best idea in the world. I will tell you the best idea. And you can literally build the best product in the world. Like it could be like just a phenomenal product, a new way to fish and with all this technology and locating fish and and, and only getting the right fish. And you can go to the fishing industry and say, look, this will get you no bycatch. It'll be, you know, it won't pollute. It will make you much, all these different things. And they could turn around to you and say, how much does it cost? Oh, we're not interested. <laughs> like we, we don't want to spend the money. We don't want to change. That's like, never happened before. <laughs> yeah, right. Like we're the fishing. We don't care that we're killing off all these species of fish. We just want to make money. Like, the, you know, there are a lot of industries out there like that. So you can have the best idea in the world, the best team, the best everything, all the money in the world, and they don't buy your product. And what you need to do is you need to find the inner, you, th- this is the bottom line. You can never create demand. Demand exists in the world independent of you. Great ideas Mm -hmm. do not create demand. Demand tells you that the idea is great. (laughs) Because if nobody (laughs) wants it, like I said, if the fishing industry isn't ready to change and nothing, you you know, you and they're not going to spend the money or spend the time or like even look at you, you're never going to change it. What you need to find is the intersection of a demand in the fishing industry, something that they need, they want. And then you can couple it with your ideals. Like, okay, look, I'm going to create something that will save you a lot of money. I'm going to create something that will make your fishing vessels much more efficient. I'm going to create, a, you know, automate things so you need less people. And at the same time, we're going to cut down on bycatch. We're going to cut down on pollution. We're going to do all these great things. But you, they're probably going to buy it for the first reasons, right? Because they've already proven their ethics aren't their number one concern, you know, but they might be your concern. So finding the intersection of demand and uh, innovation is really critical if you want to uh, do positive change in the world. Very interesting, right? And hopefully the marketeers didn't get a heart attack who are always working on demand generation and finding a way to, to get the demand up. And so, so what I, this is a really good point. So marketing, I view marketing, it's not demand generation. The marketing is actually communicating and fi- targeting the right people who already want the product. And communicating it to them in the way that they will respond. Like you, I've I've been in an industry like the interactive TV industry. Everybody's like, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. One of my first startups was in that area. There was no demand. <laughs> People didn't care. Like they didn't want to interact <laughs> uh, with their television. You know, we there were set top boxes out there. All of them failed. Our product didn't go anywhere because right. there was no demand. It was a great product. It was a very visionary idea. People, the TV industry, you know, people didn't want to interact while they're watching shows. It's lean back versus lean forward. Now, let me tell you what I like to have entrepreneurs do is go into the world and look for what I call pent up pockets of demand. It's like you're an oil wildcatter and you are sinking a well. And if there's no oil down there, no pressure coming up, like for the oil, you're not going to get anything. You're not going to create that. You can only find it. That is demand hunting. So you're going to have to sink a lot of wells at the beginning, a lot of different ideas in different areas, go out to the real market and see what produces a gusher, which explodes your startup. So you you heard here from Captain Hoff, right? Do learn more about seismology, learn more about geology if you want to be a successful startup person and pivot a lot, right? But once you find the demand, right, a great, great analogy there, but then you want to have the growth, right? Uh, Hyper growth has been the buzzword, right? So so what can you give, what advice can you give Captain Hoff for uh, the growth perspective, the exponential growth side? So the great if you want to have a, a startup that grows exponentially first of all you you need demand right <laughs> you don't have demand you're not going to grow like just won't happen demand is that power that pushes you to grow you need a great team to execute on it which we've gone over number three is your business model now if you look at all the great startups out there almost all of them not all but almost all of them have one simple model and that is recurring revenue That means every time you grab a customer, you hold on to that customer and keep giving you money. In return, you give them value. Because one of the the two biggest expenses most startups run into is their people. People are very expensive. 
And number two, uh, the biggest expense they run into is <laughs> customer acquisition. It costs a lot. Like if every time you have to go, if a customer comes, they buy your product and they leave, then you have to go out and find another customer. Really tough business to make a profit. Really, really hard. Like, so if and you want to grow exponentially, every time you get a customer, you need to hold on to that and you need to continually monetize. So let's go through the companies that do this. Look, Amazon, right? You, you know, they're making a little money every time you buy a product. Uber, every time you get in one of their vehicles, they're making a little money. Google, they have this whole ad network. And every time, you know, you go to a website, so you know, low CACs, low CACs, high ARPU is what you're talking here. Exactly. And so uh, look, if you look at your model and you can make it where you get this customer and they're always engaging and you're always getting money from them on a continual basis and it adds up to a lot of money, good business. Great, great Amazing. advice. Amazing. So this is part of the locking the customers into a product or service, but let's take that a step further because you often talk about, you know, it's not about the product or service, it's bigger, right? And it's almost like when you say ecosystems, to me, it, it sounds like you're saying, you know, it's kind of important to go activate some movements, right? Go out and activate movements, take the ecosystem and, and then supercharge that. So what do you mean by that? So, uh, yeah, I tell entrepreneurs or work with hundreds of entrepreneurs and I, I tell them don't build a product build an ecosystem and, and they're like what don't build a product I'm supposed to build a product no and ecosystems are so much more powerful because when first of all when you build get that customer when you be continually monetize that customer the first thing you want to do is lock that customer into your product and ecosystem now how do you do that so number one you do that by getting that customer to invest in you and investing doesn't necessarily mean money. It can mean time and resources. Mm -hmm. So you look at these companies that keep going and going and going, like Oracle, like people might want to switch to another <laughs> database. There are a lot of better ones out there, but they've invested so much time and resources in integrating with Oracle, they can't escape. Like they're, they're locked in, right? And then Oracle, Salesforce, Amazon, any of these companies, they have built not just products, but entire ecosystems. So they have third-party developers, this whole, like when you come into their ecosystem, you end up not just using their product, but you end up using all these other uh, products and services provided by third parties that create a richer and richer experience for the consumer. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a very simple example, Salesforce, right? There are a lot of better CRM softwares out there. There's leaner ones, better in user interfaces, more intuitive, lower priced, the list goes on. But Salesforce did something. They were early, and this is an early adopter advantage. They got their customers in there. And then instead of just giving them a CRM, they allowed all these third-party developers to come in and build an ecosystem. So when you come into Salesforce, you're not just using Salesforce. You start adopting all these third-party products. And along comes yep. another competitor, CRM, that you want to jump into. And you're like, oh, I could go to them. They, they'll cost me less money. They'll be, you know, better UI and all this. But they don't have all these other things that I'm getting. So I, 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 I can't really leave. Like, I, I'm, I'm locked into this <laughs> ecosystem. That's the power. That's why building ecosystems is so important. In consumer apps, it's the same way. Like, we all go to Amazon, right? Why do we go to Amazon? Because everybody in the Amazon ecosystem is building up is per, contributing to the value of that ecosystem every time i review a product i make amazon stronger like because those reviews are really valuable to me and everybody else in the ecosystem every time a new vendor joins they make amazon more stronger every time a new customer joins they make amazon's ecosystem more stronger you get this network effect that is extremely powerful and that's what i'm talking about so think about that when you're launching your company this is amazing, Steve, and I think we're learning a lot from you here. Uh, I'll ask you one real quick question. What, what idea has gotten you so excited in the last, say, 30 days? That's something that you hadn't seen before night, or a team that's actually working on an interesting idea that got you really excited, Some, someone that's part of the Founderspace family? So there are well, there are so many different things I am super excited about. I know. I'm trying to get you down to one. So. Yeah, so uh, one of my companies is about to go public called trust stamp really love them they're a great company super excited new product that i just stumbled across that you know i slouch i sit at a computer all the day i'm sure most of your audience you know any techie out there sitting at their computer i slouch i came across this product and i was working with them this morning giving them feedback on it it's called zen uh and it is a zen posture app that uses your 
phone on your camera phone, your your uh, to actually monitor your posture. So every time you start to slouch, you see this little icon start to slouch and you can even hear an audio <laughs> cue and you stay, sit up straight again. So that's what I'm super excited about today. <laughs> Thank Very you. Cool. Steve Hoffman, venture investor, chairman and CEO of Founderspace. And of course, you can follow him on Twitter at Founderspace. Uh, thank you so much for being here on the show. And of course, come on back. So, Thank you. All right. <coughs> Amazing All stuff. Pretty crazy. Amazing pretty stuff good, that's going yeah. on here. So, but uh, hey, we've got our next guest, Mike Nugent, the managing director of Vestigo Ventures. So, and as you know, Mike joined Vestigo in 2016 with 20 years of public market and private equity and startup experience. Prior to joining Vestigo, he was the CEO and chairman of Bison, a SaaS-based data and analytics solution provider for the $10 trillion private investment market space. And of course, it was uh, rebranded as Cobalt and acquired by Factset in October 2021. He's currently a board member of Acorn Finance, Kuru Credit, Fort Motive, Jabo, Long Game, Vault and is a board observer of Cushion. Mike previously served as board observer of Marauder, uh, Marauder and was acquired by Kuna Mutual Group in November 2018. So thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for being part of Vestigo Ventures. And you can follow him on Twitter at MD Nugent. Welcome to the show. Ray, Olger, thank you very much for having me today. Great, great to have you, Mike. But uh, we all carefully curate our backgrounds, right? I know um, Ray's picture in the background. I see your picture. But is it a golden microphone right next to you? Or what, what is the object behind it, it, your left? It's actually an old, old school nautical telescope that's actually mounted. So I've got a couple random, uh, all the stuff that my wife doesn't want in the house winds up in my office. Um, so I've got all my, my odd knickknacks. Right, rounds up in your backgrounds are disruptive. So we continue the nautical theme. I love it. From Captain Hoff to a maritime telescope. Perfect. So you obviously work a lot. You only work in the fintech space right now. From what we Correct. Know, right? so, and uh, what we learned from, from uh, Steve is right, principles which are generic for all industries. Right? Is there something which makes fintech investments different than the rest of all the business opportunities for startups out there? Uh, very much so. Um, you know, I, having founded a fintech company, uh, you know, it was always very shocking to see how, and I don't want to say easy it is, any startup is difficult, you're defying gravity. Um, but, you know, the consumer uh, plays where folks could sort of put a test button or just see if people are going to be interested in something. Um, and, and if they click it enough, yeah, let's go build it. Let's actually add that in. Um, with fintech, you, you don't have that luxury. You really have to build institutional commercial ready solutions the day you deliver it. And you can't really have those test buttons. And so what it really creates is a much greater dependency or value on the customer development effort. And that's one of the things I feel almost got away from everybody during this, you know, venture capital, you know, heydays over the last five, six years. Everyone had a good idea. Lots of people are willing to write checks. And a lot of people got away from the discipline of how do you really quickly build a company that people are willing to support. And by support means buy, you know, give you one dollar. Um, and, you know, I can admit, I, I made the same mistake when I found advice and, you know, 11 years ago, I had this, you know, what I thought was my epiphany and I, I thought I was going to change the, you know, the private markets. Um, and so I went out to every one of my meetings and did, you know, dozens of meetings in advance of founding the company, but I was telling them how I was going to fix their world. And the problem with that is it immediately put them down a path of just thinking about this idea that I was telling them versus me asking the questions to finding out were the problems that I experienced, you know, just my own unique problems um, or were they industry-wide? And um, so when we first launched Bison, it was a marketplace and it was amazing. You know, in the first 90 days, we had $5 billion of interest between both side, buy side and sell side. And, you know, of course, slayed it. You know, we know, we figured it out. Look at this, we're the next, you know, massive unicorn. And it took, uh, you know, one VC to just eviscerate me and tell me all the things that were wrong. And it was a matter of listening to, to the negative, not just the positive. And I took a step back and really did you know, deep research on how do, you, how do you efficiently really utilize customer development? And how do you go out and vet a thesis without poisoning the well? How do you actually make sure that people are telling you what you're building is what they want? And most importantly, how do you get the pricing to say, is it worth it to even build this? Um, so for me, I, I'm a complete customer development and science of sales wonk. Um, I'm an absolute, you know, evangelist of data, although I've got the technical chops of like my 12 year old, he's probably better than me. Um, but I absolutely am a, a mad data driven uh, investor. So, you know, I think in fintech, there really has to be a true discipline, a true belief in what makes lean startup bought in and not just a pretty, you know, UI 
on top of antiquated technology, which has happened all too often. You know, Mike, real quick, I mean, uh, we should take it back to the thesis of uh, Vestigo Ventures when uh, David, Ian and Mark uh, founded the firm. Like, what's the, I mean, it's super data driven, actually. It's actually yep. very freaky how data driven it is. Uh, let's talk about that. I mean, what that thesis is, and then we'll come back and talk about, you know, what's going on in the uh, fintech space. Uh, are we late or are we early? Absolutely. So, um, so Vestigo is a pure seed stage fintech VC focused on North American companies. Um, for us, what we saw was that there was a gap in funding at the seed stage. And to your question, Ray, um, you know, we really have to address all the headlines, all the money that's gone to the industry. Did we miss the boat or are we still in the early innings? And, and I'll answer that in a moment. But um, part of this is, you know, Mark Cassidy was, uh, you know, 12 years CEO and chairman of LPL Financial which is the largest independent broker dealer platform in the world. You know, 17,000 RAs or so on it. And over the course of Mark's mm -hmm. tenure, they invested about a quarter billion dollars into the infrastructure there. And what that did was create just a highly effective, efficient company where you can take a wealth manager from any one of the major wirehouses who you know, earns about 20%, plug them in on the uh, LPL platform, and they'll make 80% take home. And that firm, LPL, is more profitable than the other wirehouses because of the efficiencies there. Um, Dave is the pure technologist. Um, so Dave graduated from MIT, was deep into building neural networks, founded a company called DataSage. DataSage did all the original big data work for Walmart. And when Jeff Bezos pouched, uh, poached, excuse me, the, uh, the Amazon big data team to found, um, no, excuse me, the Walmart big, team, uh, big data team to found uh, Amazon, brought Dave and his team as well. So working on all those original preference algorithms, if you bought this, you might like that. People who looked at this, looked at that, was all from that work. Um, and then had just an unbelievable exit to a company you guys probably remember, Vignette. Um, and Vignette, Vignette, you know, was pre roll up with the dot com days, every, the darling of the time. Um, but when the market collapsed, you know, it took everything down with it, particularly in the dot com field. And what Dave wanted to do was really turn the paradigm on its head of, of company formation is instead of every time you build a company, you need to build a new database and then figure out what was good and bad data and what were good and bad decisions and sort of flying with one eye open for the first few years of a company's formation, wanted to flip that on its head and create a core database to spin companies up from. And that's Kogo Labs where we're co-located. So Kogo sits on about 16 petabytes of data, uh, consumer intent data, you know, which is, you know, really gives us an opportunity to sort of view into about 86% of North America's, you know, online activity. And that consumer intent plays really well to high fidelity on anything that's B2C. It gives us very good insights and anything that's sort of B2B2C or really worksite and helps us really identify those opportunities and threats that are on the horizon for enterprise companies that otherwise wouldn't be able to see that. So for us, you know, having that data advantage just gives us much more confidence in what we're doing. And it makes us really believe in the objective data versus just the subjective gut feels we might be seeing on something. So Mike, are we late or are we early? We got banking as a service, we got DeFi, we got decentralization happening, everything's being funded, the FinTech yep. layer's being disrupted, crypto value you know, is taking a play. Uh, we got Ryan talking about DAOs in a little bit later here. Yep. I mean, it looks like it's a mess. It looks like we're early, but then again, some people tell me we're late. What's your timing on this? And what does the data say? I'd say we're in the midst of the organized chaos of the second inning. Um, you know, venture capital had historically gone to, you know, bio, to consumer, to you know, industrial. FinTech or financial services were just left behind and everybody was building their own proprietary technologies internally and mm -hmm. it became so inefficient. Um, you know, one of the other portfolio companies we work with uh, is Vestmark and Vestmark just saw this beautiful vision that essentially the world's going to go to separately managed accounts and it's not going to be just for the ultra wealthy but you had to have a very smart communication platform to do so. So if a major wirehouse is working, uh, running separately managed accounts with all the benefits of that, it costs them about 18 to 20 basis points to run those programs. If they move on to a Vestmark stack, it costs them one to two basis points. So when you can create uh, that much of an efficiency on the cost of operation, you have to run to it. Wild. So, and that that's across the board here. You know, every one of these firms with their, you know, old COBOL, old Linux, you know, everything that's still sitting there that they're bringing people back from, uh, you know, vacation or from retirement to help support these rickety old structures. They're going to need to, lean, you know, for the first move was really leaning into third party apps that can plug in and augment what they were doing. But now they're going to be able to have a much greater dependency on much more efficient software, much more efficient, you know, installs that are going to make their businesses, you know, competitive where they have been falling behind.
Yeah, super interesting. I have an uncle who retired at 55, was a COBOL developer. Now he's <laughs> in the 70s. He works four days a month and makes more money than in a month 20 years ago. So He's in high demand. You talk to <laughs> yeah. any of the uh, incumbents. They're yeah. like, hey, can you find him, please? And I'm thinking, I need to dust that off. <laughs> and, no. you, and you can't teach this current. The, the new generation of engineers are not going to bury themselves in learning COBOL. So right. th th this is the breaking point, you know, are they going to actually move off this old rickety structure that's 30, 40 years, you know, in the, in the rear view mirror, or are they going to move to new, you know, efficient engineering and developers and engage right. the next generation, excuse me, generation. It's also a great example that very deep, rich IT budgets don't necessarily deliver a good IT landscape or reality, right? Which you see also in telco, <laughs> not just in fintech, right? So a good, good lesson learned from that perspective. And I also like that you say data-centric, not group-think-centric, right? Because when I, I'm not a VC or a PE investor, but I see like somebody gets someone in one space, everybody else gets someone in the space, kind of like guaranteed funding because uh, there's kind of like uh, the lemmings effect or so. So a question for you is now, where do you see the biggest opportunities, right? It's quoting Steve Fossman, right? The, the high pressure areas, which are under the under the ground of the earth, where the opportunity will just come out. Do you see anything interesting there? I, I do. The two companies jump out and you know, we made an investment one back last year, one uh, year before that. But uh, one is cognitive process automation and one is behavioral analytics, really on, you know, reading digital body language. And, um, you know, the first one, uh, it's a company by the name of Roots Automation and, and absolutely love the way that they're attacking it. You know, we've all seen these intelligence layers that get put on top of companies, you know, customer database or just you know, what, they're, what they're operating with. Um, but so often they were so highly customized that they weren't even able yeah. to be sort of supported or have the scale to sort of build out. Um, and they also weren't being built with specialization in regards to the training modules and learning data sets. Um, so now if you look at ones that are, you know, starting in an industry, but have broad enterprise applicability, that's exactly where we're seeing unbelievable demand. So, um, you know, Roots is one where it's a cognitive process automation, you know, and, and many people have a hard time differentiating that from RPA, but RPA historically has had such a poor success rate. You know, very few people have actually had very good outcomes with it. And this is one where they've taken it. It was, you know, team of founders that were heading up innovation at AIG and what they were seeing is, you know, all these large corporations were the only ones really employing this AI and they were building an AI infrastructure, employing an army of people to do it. But then it became completely proprietary, not scalable. And then you had sort of the rest of the market that were not getting any AI solutions except some off the shelf stuff that wouldn't fit to their workflow. And this, this really needs to be a much more cost effective solution, pre-built bots designed by industry. Um, and so they started doing that and, and they work with, you know, fantastic, you know, large banks, large consultancies, large insurance, um, you know, anything that's like a regulated industry where there's so it's such a need for high throughput, but there's so much human error that comes in the process. That's where this dials in. So accounts receivable, accounts payable, regulatory form submission, claims. You, know, you just think about all these things that are not secret sauce to make a company the next winner, but all the stuff that they have to do and you plug this in a couple of you know, really interesting differentiators. It's a company that plugs in via the VPN. So it's not even again, a worry about security. If a company is confident with its own security, you're plugged in via the VPN, you're banging, you're going, and the bot is basically getting an employee image. Um, and now the great thing there is the bots learn from the bots and the bots learn from the employees. So what a brilliant way to have federated learning, tackling all these common, you know, responsibilities for every company. Um, and it plays from one industry to the next, to the next. Um, and then the other one is a company by the name of Formotive and they built a really intelligent, um, you know, behavioral analytics platform, helping to look at what is high potential sales, uh, where there's friction, and most importantly, where there's fraud, both in the sales and the claims process with anybody. So they work with a major wireless carrier that's had hundreds of millions of dollars of online phone fraud. Many of uh, the top five uh, insurance carriers and even one of the leading gig employers, um, where if there was you know, readiness, worker readiness of every 1% increase, adds about a million, uh, two and a half million of um, EBITDA to that company just for having worker readiness known. Yeah, super interesting yeah. example on the fraud side, near and dear to my heart, being here in San Diego because of FICO. So lots of yeah. upside in many other different areas. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely seeing that. I mean, but you know, as, as you're guiding these startups and, and really getting them as you do early stage investing, you guys pretty much do seed investing, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, right. What do you, 
what advice do you give these startups? I know you're purely focused on the fintech space. Um, what do you what What are you looking for? What kind of advice do they ask for you? Um, what kind of things that help uh, a tech startup uh, in the fintech space uh, become more successful? Uh, what 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 would you tell a person actually seeking funding from you? Like, what, what's the qualifications they need to have in front of you? So sure, and, and I'd say that that guidance shifts very quickly depending on the stage of the company. Um, but to echo some of Steve's comments earlier. You, know, you just got to dive in. And, and, you know, one of my, one of my, you know, mentors back when was another VC by the name of Jeff Fagnan over at Accomplice. And he hammered oh, yeah. this comment of uh, build proof scale. And, and I just absolutely love that. You know, you have to build something, you have to have something people to kick the tires on or see how it feels. And once you have that, then you've got to prove that it really is as valuable as you think it is, or as the market is giving you feedback on, and how you really price that, and how do you actually create a, rep or, you know, a repeating process. And then once you have that, that's when you invest in scale. Um, I think all too often folks get those out of order. They hire salespeople before they have a process. You know, so what I would say is, you, know, you need to jump in, you know, feet first, start doing it. And don't expect someone to sort of fund you to leave your job to go chase your dream. Start, you know, working two shifts, start doing whatever you have to do, get something going so people can kick the tires on it. Um, and once you have it, listen to the negative feedback. Don't just listen to the affirmation because everybody wants to, everyone, everyone likes an underdog, right? So if somebody starts to build something like, oh, that's wonderful. And you might walk out of the room, they're like, no way, that's terrible but they don't want to say that to your face. So the people that are brave enough to tell you what's wrong or what the shortcomings are, that's the most valuable feedback they're going to get. Well, that's an easy solution. Well, if you're on the West Coast, then it's passive-aggressive, yeah. If you're on the West Coast and we're passive-aggressive, you'll never get a hold of that, so. Yeah. yeah. Holger, sorry. No, no, I get a, get a German investment company because the Germans will brutally tell you. So They'll tell you exactly, yeah. I have to put well, the filters on here. No, I'm just kidding. But, yeah. We were talking about that when I was running Vice, and uh, I had a number of VCs tell me that I, I was transparent to a fault. And it, you know, at first, I was like, "Oh, well, what am I doing? Am I disclosing?" I'm like, "No, oh, yeah, I'm going to wear that as a badge of honor. You know, I will tell you exactly what I yeah. see. We want to close the loop. It doesn't do anybody any favors to just have pleasantries and niceties. Um, it's a matter of getting down and adding value. Um, so right. it might not always be the answer that people want to hear, but they're going to get a clear answer. Yeah. But I, I want to burn yeah, one minute on uh, you're not only the ruthless investor, VC, whatever. You're also chairman of a nonprofit, which as a father of two teenagers is very close to my heart. So do you want to spend like one minute and tell us what you're doing? Yeah, let's definitely jump in. Absolutely. So uh, very fortunate recently to be asked to join as the chairman of the Vivian Helene Foundation. Um, and it's a foundation designed to help uh, support families going through the grief of the loss of a child. So very dear family friends, unfortunately lost their daughter um, at the beginning of 2020, right before the pandemic. And it's something that's just, you know, grief and, and, and you, you can't put words to it for the loss of a family losing a child, um, whatever the circumstances may be. And this is a foundation that's designed to really help everybody. Obviously, we all know that an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure, but most of the services out there really sort of stop when there's the loss of someone. And yep. this is where they're really trying to bring back and help people come out of that dark place, know that there's others there like them, and what can they do to sort of find light find something to look forward to despite they've had the greatest loss ever. So um, I was humbled. I'm absolutely flattered that, you know, TJ and Beth Maxwell asked me to join uh, as chairman of the foundation. And we're actually holding our first uh, our inaugural fundraiser next weekend. And then our inaugural retreat uh, for the first 10 families uh, in October. And the long-term goal is to be able to have a, a healing center for anyone that's experienced the loss of a child. So Holger, I really appreciate you asking about that. And it's one thing that's really come up during this pandemic is, this silent killer of children is it, this depression, this anxiety, everything that's going on um, and the uh, stigma around not being able to talk about having problems. We're all going through tough times. You know, we're seeing global concerns. We're seeing immediate concerns. Just talk. Everyone just needs to be able to open up and talk and find and ask for help if they do need it. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thanks for doing that's this. Wonderful point. Yeah. Awesome. Thank, well, thank you, so you guys very much for having me and I really appreciate you asking about the foundation. Yep, we're here with Mike Nugent, Managing Director at Vestigo Ventures. You can follow him at MD Nugent. And of course, you can check out the foundation and follow that at, uh, what is it, vivianhelene.org, if I remember. So if that's correct. correct. So, yep. All right. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for being on the show. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Enjoy the long right. holiday weekend, gentlemen. You too. Wow, Holger. 
We're back to back on the tech startup scene, but we couldn't do anything without talking about my favorite topic, which is the metaverse economy. And who best to talk about this and talking about what's happening next in this space is our next guest. And uh, our next guest is Ryan David Williams, founder of Ashbury. Uh, he began his legal career on Wall Street, the global law uh, firm, Morrison and Forrester, I would say MoFo, uh, where he helped companies with their IPS. He then joined the Silicon Valley powerhouse, Oric, and of course, went on to help early stage companies. But you know, uh, you've been focused and forming uh, Ashbury Legal over the last two years, creating a human-centric designed approach, and of course, you know, changing the way we look at law and actually on the forefront of some amazing things. We were sitting on a plane together. I can't even remember where we were headed. I want to say it's New York when, Actually, you know, maybe it was Austin and we were talking South, about South, something. We're going to South. We're going to South by. That's okay. right. We were going to South by and you're like, I do this thing with, you know, DAOs. You know, I don't know if you know anything about it. And we just went at it. And it was amazing. And so welcome to the show, Ryan. And of course, um, you know, welcome, more importantly, to Disrupt TV. So, yeah, very happy to be here. It was a really serendipitous flight and uh, really nice that, you know, the world is, is in a place where we were able to do that. And now here we are talking today and i think we'll see each other in austin again in a couple of weeks so really excited to be here and uh, nice to meet you as well holger yeah nice to meet you and is that is i'm take, picking apart the backgrounds is there any way to catch something maritime or are we breaking that spell right now in your background i i, I, I was going to mention it i'm i'm glad you asked i'm a horrible weatherman here so i won't be able to point out to it right but here we go over here behind that plant there is actually an old sextant so I do a lot of sailing here in the uh, San Francisco Bay. Perfect. So I mean, I don't know how much more nautical you can get than that. So uh, it's we're, we're, we're three you, for you three made, on the on the maritime theme for you. You, you sextants are the the hammer in maritime. I do know where you are. So uh, <laughs> perfect. So thanks for keeping the theme up. And now I know why I'm co-moderating today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just don't ask me to use celestial it navigation it's, uh, is hot. It's, it's, yeah, it's very it's very decorative, but not very functional. At least not in my hands. <laughs> sure. So. The interesting question is, right, everybody's speaking about it, what is a DAO, a DAO, right? Um, explain it to us in layman terms for everybody who never heard the term. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's, you know, pronounced DAO is all you'll hear uh, discussed. Uh, it stands in acronym standing for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. You know, you hear about this a lot in blockchain and crypto space and in Web3. We can talk a little bit about what that means in a moment. But, you know... I'm not going to jump into here's what it means in the crypto context, because I think it's much more applicable than that, uh, generally applicable than that. And I also think it is a little bit more basic than that, right? Like we don't, you don't have to understand distributed ledger technology to understand a DAO. So in its most basic form, which I think is probably the right place to start, uh, a DAO is really just a new way for a group of people to organize collaborative economic activity. I mean, that's it. It's an organizational structure. Uh, just like a group of people might say, hey, I want to you know, work on this business together. Let's go form a partnership. Let's go form a corporation or you know, more recently an LLC. A DAO is just another way to, to kind of collaboratively organize economic activity. Now, you know, there's still no, uh, feel free to jump in at any time, gentlemen, but there's still no kind of legal definition of a DAO or even really like a market standard for what a DAO is. So we have clients come to us all the time and say, hey, I want to form a DAO. The first question is, well, what does that mean to you, right? There is no kind of DAO in a box, and we're really still figuring this out. If Mike said we're in the second inning of fintech, like we're still in batting practice for crypto and, and DAOs, right? I mean, um, it, there are still kind of three general themes, though, and principles that I think kind of cut across all different DAO structures we've seen. Uh, one is there's a horizontal structure, two, inclusive participation and three, transparent decision-making. So kind of what I mean by those in the horizontal structure, there is no CEO of a DAO, for example, right? So within kind of that organization and how it works, there are just DAO members. One token equals one vote, right? Um, um, in terms of inclusive participation, most of the time, anyone can join these DAOs. So if you have an interest in a particular topic or a community or a project, and there's a DAO that's been structured to organize that economic activity, you can go join that DAO. You can vote on proposals. And you know, the more tokens you require, the more you can, uh, you know, the, 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 the greater say you're gonna have in that organization. Third is the transparent decision-making. Uh, this is very kind of, you know, comes out of the ethos of distributed ledger technology where everything is kind of open source and 
publicly available. If you go look at a block explorer, you can go see every Ethereum or every Bitcoin transaction that has ever occurred. This kind of comes out of that where, you know, these votes are on chain. And so what you'll see is you'll see a proposal be made by a member of the community. Typically, anyone can put forward a proposal. You then can go vote for that proposal using, a, you know, a tool kind of called Snapshot. There are others that are coming up as well, but that's probably the most popular one. And we can see what the proposal is. We can see all the votes cast. We can see the yays, the nays, and, you know, more than just the actual decision making, but oftentimes the actual, you know, end result of that decision making is also transparent and on chain, right? So if you have a DeFi protocol and you have a community who's making a decision about some of the parameters, right? What's the collateralization rate that we're gonna require on this DeFi lending protocol? Well, you can see that proposal, you can vote online, you can see every single vote out there. And then that change might actually be automated. That, you know, that vote comes in, it says, let's change the collateral requirement to 80%. Well, that will automatically be done at that smart contract. And so not only, again, is the decision making transparent, but the actual, you know, affecting that decision is also often done transparently. So horizontal structure, inclusive participation and transparent decision making to me in my mind. And there's a lot of people who have different views on this because, again, we're in batting practice. That is a DAO to me in its most basic form. Yeah, that's actually a pure form. And I, I see a lot of modifications popping up, right? Some of these are related to like, how you even get voting rights? Can it be done without a token? How do you earn a token? What's that value exchange? It's almost like rules at a, you know, at your favorite organization or membership organization uh, without like the secret closed room, you know, deals that are going on in the back end. So it, it's exactly right. You're able to make those rules, right? And then you're able to change those rules. So it's not just how is it established, but how does it evolve? And the rules for how I vote and who votes and how many votes I get are changing, right? And and it might not just be, hey, I went out and bought a bunch of tokens because that would mean, hey, whoever has the most money in the room has the biggest vote. You could also have certain DAOs where you earn those by participating, right? So you have to be engaged and actually care and follow what's going on to be able to earn a vote. And so now it's not who's the biggest stockholder or who has the most tokens or who has the most money. It's who cares the most about this? Who has dedicated themselves to this the most? And as a kind of, you know, a result of that, who is in the best position to know and to care about what should happen next? And I would posit that's, that's not always the biggest stockholder. And so, so question for you then, then, so people choose to join these in their own free will. How do the rules get enforced? Let's say, you know, someone's upset at a rule or something like, do, do they arbitrate somewhere? Do they go get sued somewhere? Like, I mean, like who enforces that? Or it's like, oh, tough luck, you join, these are the rules, go away. If you wanna change it, go start a movement and come back later. It, it, it's a great question. And we're still kind of seeing how the, you know, both governments and courts are going to answer that question. But I think there is kind of a, you know, for the, crypto and blockchain maximalist and purist they would say these are the rules you knew the rules when you joined including the rules for how to make changes go about you know the, the this change that you want to see in our protocol and our DAO and our community based on these rules right um and but you have you know dispute over this right this is where you get forks in in blockchains right people probably heard of forks it's half the community says let's reverse a transaction half says no let's not re reverse a transaction so they say fine we're just going to go our separate ways right and i think you're going to yeah. start seeing that with DAOs as well hey i don't like the way the majority you know kind of tyranny by the majority i don't like the way you're doing this we're going to go form our own DAO. Um, you know, and we can talk in a little bit about, you know, how DAOs are regulated and what courts are saying about this. But, you know, we already have kind of our first lawsuit uh, uh, by a DAO member against a DAO. Uh, and the question is, you know, I mean, there's all, there's all sorts of questions. We could spend a whole you know hour going through some of those. But the short answer is we're still figuring this out. And it's very much still largely driven by the community itself. Amazing. Is there, is there any regulation, I would be happy for not seeing it in a while, not that I'm against regulation in general or per se, but there's always the unintended consequences of that, right? So the last thing you want is yeah. a Sabman's Oxley version 2 for DAOs in the early phase for that, yeah. right? But is there any regulation on the horizon or is it still just an early phase where if you form a DAO, you don't even have to worry about it yet? Well, um, it's a great question. And uh, I would say you absolutely still have to worry about uh, you know, laws and regulations, right? I mean, one thing we know for sure 
There's no government regulator or plaintiff's lawyer on the planet is ever going to say, oh, man, you know, I don't like what you're doing, but oh, shucks, you organized yourself as a DAO. There's nothing we can do about it. Right. <laughs> so we all we know that's not going to be right. the case. We already see some some lawsuits and some regulatory activity uh, mm -hmm. in the space suggesting that that's the case or that's really that's not the case. Um, but in terms of specific regulation on DAOs, there really isn't anything yet. There is in Wyoming a, a, a new statute that created what's called, you know, a Wyoming DAO LLC. Uh, yep. And so they're trying, it's not so much regulating DAOs, but saying, hey, we're actually going to give you a corporate form designed specifically for this type of organizational structure. Um, in Wyoming, this is kind of, you know, very appropriate, I think, that Wyoming's doing this because many people don't realize that, you know, LLCs have become so ubiquitous that you can form an LLC in basically any state you want right now. That wasn't the case up until the 70s when this concept of, hey, you know, people don't like the corporate form for how they want to organize themselves. It doesn't give enough flexibility, et cetera. And so Wyoming said, hey, you know what, we'll create a new corporate form called a limited liability company, and it's going to give people a new way to organize their economic activity. This is really just an extension of that. This is just, again, a new way to organize collaborative economic activity. And Wyoming has acknowledged this and is at the forefront of saying, hey, we're going to create a structure yeah, for one it. One of the leaders. Absolutely. And, and, and like I said, it's, it's, it's good to look back at history and say, well, they did this before, right? So when people are rolling their eyes saying, well, we don't need a new corporate form, right? Or a new way to organize economic, economic, economic activity. We got all these forms, you know, all these existing structures. Well, think about we didn't have LLCs, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So um, I think we're, you know, DAOs are kind of pushing that conversation. You know, will they be codified in every state like an LLC? I don't know. Um, but I also don't know that it's critical, you know, that, that, that the answer to that is a very critical um, uh, uh, topic, because what I do know is that they're pushing the conversation forward about, hey, there are existing corporate forms best suited to do all economic activity, maybe some subset of their economic activity, but there's a large segment of the population who says, I want something different. The way I want to organize around like-minded people to do like-minded economic activity, I don't like the existing options out there for me. Wow, that is huge. I mean, that is a big shift that we're seeing in the marketplace. Uh, we're definitely going to see that for quite some time in terms of where DAOs are headed. Um, but is this a fad? Like, are we going to be like, ah, it's just kind of like this year was the year of NFTs, like next year will be the year of DAOs and people are like, hey, forget DAOs. Like, or, or is it going to be so part and integrated of our, um, of our corporate decision making of how memberships are created, how companies are being funded, right? How movements are being activated. I mean, I see these as huge investment vehicles, but maybe I've got it wrong. Yeah, you know what, I, I think the buzzword DAO is, you know, a little bit of a fad, at least if we talk about kind of, you know, how popular or, you know, it is right now or how much you hear it. Like, I can't go to any conference without talking to someone asking about DAOs and film, DAOs and art, DAOs and NFTs, DAOs and the metaverse, right? Um, and that was kind of what the NFT conversation was like last year. And it was what the tokenization conversation was like the year before. <laughs> so, so like whether DAOs themselves, like I don't, I've been a corporate attorney for 10 years. I don't think, you know, Visa and MasterCard and, you know, are turning themselves into DAOs anytime soon. But I do think that these kind of underlying principles and, and you know, of wanting more transparent decision-making, wanting a more egalitarian share of economic activity, especially when I, the user, am the source of a lot of that value. Um, I think these things are, are, are here to stay. And I think, you know, if we look at the, you know, human evolution of kind of business and, and kind of economic structures, it's always been an evolution, right? And to think that, oh, we finally have perfected the way that economic activity needs to be organized and managed, and it's not going to ever get any better than this is probably like, you know, the height of human arrogance. And so I, you know, look at a company like Facebook is a good example, because, you know, they're easy to kind of pick on and, and they also have a profound impact on the world. Like if, if, Facebook adopted principles of kind of transparent and community driven decision making. Like, I don't think its users would, you know, raise their hand and agree to be, you know, manipulated by foreign governments and Cambridge Analytica probably doesn't happen. Right. Or you hear all this talk about privacy and, and everyone's really upset about, you know, how Facebook handles privacy. I kind of feel like people don't care about privacy and what they really care about is I become the product and all my private semi-private information is now being used to make Zuckerberg rich, right? Or the, or the, or the stockholders, the major stockholders <laughs> rich. And I think if Facebook 
shared some of that economic um, yeah. uh, uh, gains, right? And everyone for your tweet, the more likes you got, you got paid a little bit. I bet- We like, get value crime, exchange right away. Yeah, I, I yeah. feel like all the, oh my gosh, my privacy would start to die down a little bit, right? And so this is just examples. I think that the companies of the world, whether they're going to become DAOs or not, cannot ignore these kind of principles and these demands for better distribution of the economic rewards of, 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 of that activity and more transparent, inclusive, egalitarian decision-making processes. That is not a fad. Very interesting, right? It's uh, companies uh, compete about business value and value creation and how they do that, but it's also so legal firms to play a huge role, right? As we know, like in the maturing part of capitalism 100 years ago or so. And do, do you see the existing companies, you mentioned some of that, do you see the existing companies thinking about having maybe a DAO a daughter subsidiary, which uh, they don't uh, overrule totally to provide uh, kind of like that innovation and all the benefits of the DAO to themselves? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely do. And we talk to big companies all the time who are thinking, how do I adopt some of these principles into what I do, right? And again, it's not, I'm not handing over the keys of the kingdom to this decentralized organization of a bunch of anonymous people all over the world. But I see a lot of it in terms of things like, I want to be charitable, I want to make contributions, but I want to make contributions that matter to my community, right? Mm -hmm. And thinking about community as kind of a stakeholder, not, hey, I have owners, I have managers, I have workers, and I have customers, but starting to collapse those a little bit into kind of a, a singular persona kind of known as the community and saying, hey, I want to do what matters to the community. So if you community vote on where we're going to spend our corporate philanthropy. Right. And I think that's not a DAO. You don't need a legal structure for that. But I think it is still a profound recognition that, hey, let's listen. We talked a lot about, hey, let's listening to people out there. Let's listen to our existing customers, not just in terms of what product they want, but how they want us to operate, how they want us to be corporate citizens. There's a huge ESG movement, obviously, going on. And so I think that, yes, all companies all of all sizes of all kind of, you know, different stages of their life cycle need to be thinking about community and their community. What does that mean? What do they want? And how do you give them some say? Bring them into your fold. We talked earlier about making building an ecosystem. It's yeah. not, doesn't have to be just by locking them into some antiquated product system. It can be by making this them feel like this is theirs. They have some role here. Create more of like a Rousseauian social contract. And those folks aren't going to want to leave your ecosystem because they're going to believe in you because they believe in themselves and they help create what you are. And that is powerful. You know, Ryan, we are just at the beginning of the DAO movement. It is going to be incredible to see where these things and vehicles take us. I hear anything from um, the pure intent of the DAOs you're talking about to modified DAOs where, you know, a lot of the uh, board governance, a lot of the automation of rules are being created to activate communities inside organizations. I see this also as funding mechanisms that are popping up, you know, as people are creating these organizations that can make super fast decisions and then adjust along the way. And it's going to be amazing to have this conversation a year from now and more importantly as well. Uh, when we're on stage at the Enterprise Digital Assets Summit on June 8th as well, where you'll be up on a panel talking about DAOs. So yeah. right before consensus. So looking, look, looking forward to it, Ray. Hey, well, thanks so much for being here. Ryan David Williams, uh, founder of Ashbury. And of course, you can follow him on Twitter at Ashbury Legal and catch him live June 8th at Consensus in Austin, Texas. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks for having me, you guys. Everyone have a wonderful weekend. Woohoo. All right. Oh my God, Holger, this is the tough part. We have gone through three guests like nothing. Uh, time flies when we're on Disrupt TV. Uh, and more importantly, it's been a crazy thing. What are your thoughts? I mean, going through these three guests, what do you think, uh, you know, what have we learned today? I mean, it's super interesting, right? So, I mean, startups are the ones who keep the industry in its toes, right? The software industry, right? And, and, and with software powering this and other startups in general, other areas too, we talked about software here. And it's so important to have this business innovation paradigm which forces new thinking, different ways of doing things, enabled by technology, right? Just speaking with Ryan, I was just realizing the, the DAO is the first, first legal form, not like a legal form, which is codified yet, but it's the first one mm -hmm. enabled by technology, right? So before it was just, you have to put enough capital in, you're reliable for the capital at a certain point. It was more like a security of doing business, super important in the innovation of the LSC, the S Corp, and all the other corps. But interesting that the technology is there to do that and blockchain has been looking for use cases right so that's interesting and great advice from steve no question about that and and great to see the portfolio and how they manage it i really like that data driven and not group thing approach on vestigo ventures so that's my my nuggets to take away from today for now very very cool 
wonderful analysis. Next next week, episode 282, we welcome back Vala to the team. And of course, we'll be talking to Dr. David Bray, Director of Geotech Center, Geotech Commission. Also, Joshua Goldbard, founder and CEO at MobileCoin. And of course, Sarah Navanti at MobileCoin as we continue to discover about this conversation about new sets of technologies. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern almost every Friday. And of course, join us for all our files, repeats, uh, broadcasts, of course, on YouTube, Spotify, and of course, your favorite streaming service. So thanks a lot, everybody. Have a wonderful week. Oh.